Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 26th, we're studying 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. St. Paul has charged Timothy to wage the good warfare as a pastor. Now Paul begins to lay out how that is to be done for the saints in Ephesus under Timothy's care. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Really good to be here. So we get started this morning. Give us some context. We've come through 1 Timothy chapter 1. What do we need to know from that chapter carrying forward into chapter 2? Right. I think the most helpful thing to notice about chapter 1 is really prompted by how out of left field chapter two seems. I mean, at least my initial read on this, and maybe it's because I'm not a genius or anything like that, but uh, it it seems like he's he's going along talking about, like you said, fighting the good fight and steadfastness in the faith. And then he goes and talks about praying for the government. <laughs> what does this have to do with all of it? Um, I think what we need to notice about chapter one is the... Um, it's this continual exhortation to faithfulness. Uh, you know, almost immediately, and I, this seems a little unusual for Paul, but um, he uh, he starts to talk about, you know, after his introduction, he starts to talk about um, all these uh, these challenges that he was having, uh, you know, in in Ephesus, um, or at least when when he was uh, when they were when he went uh, to Macedonia and all the challenges they were having in Ephesus about. Uh, you know, problems of, of genealogies and myths and, uh, you know, in, in other uh, leaders leading them astray. And, uh, and so this is, this is this constant, constant urge to, uh, to steadfastness. And he even makes comment, a very specific comment about these, uh, these two guys uh, by the name of Alexander and Hymnaeus. Um, and he says he's going to hand them over to Satan, even that they might learn, not learn to blaspheme. And so, so this prayer then, this exhortation for prayer, um, really ends up serving this function uh, that um, that you would be steadfast in the faith. How in uh, to this end, this is what you're to pray for. So the connection between chapter one and chapter two is Paul said, "Here's the importance of steadfastness, of faithfulness." Now he's saying, "Pray for that." Pray for right. that. Okay, good. When it comes to, and I know I'll read the whole text in a moment, but just the the first word of chapter two in English is first. So first of all, then I urge that supplications. And again, we'll talk about that. When when Paul says first of all, there is is he giving that temporally in the sense of the first thing that you do is this, or is it a matter of importance, the most important thing that you? What do you think? Or is maybe there a bit of both? Yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that because he'll use that phrase um, in either way, either like uh, temporally or logically. Um, and I think, I think honestly, it's so. This is just me shooting from the hip, but I think it's just a matter of like, well, this is the first thing I was thinking of 
you know, in my, you know, in my mental outline of things that I want to say to you, Timothy. So, um, I don't think it's necessarily the, uh, you know, the highest, but it does have a certain logic to it that, you know, because as Paul's going to talk about that, the purpose of praying for the authorities is so that they would be, lead, be able to lead a quiet and godly life. And in that way, it's it's kind of at least societally foundational, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if there's chaos all around, um, it makes it really hard, you know, to live out this life of faith, especially if there's chaos in the church. And so there might be a sense in which it could be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's—I mean, I don't know that you can separate the two here. I, I think there's a bit of both. It's its certainly of great importance for Timothy's role as a pastor for his own ministry. It's important for the congregation there in, in Ephesus. I mean, and, and as you said, it's important then for the, the whole society. So whether or not that means, hey, this is the first thing that you're going to do in the worship service— or the first thing when you—I don't know if Timothy had an office. He probably didn't. Uh, the first thing you go to your, your study in the morning, you you pray. Maybe there's something to that temporally, but but perhaps it is more a matter of importance. Well, well, maybe we can reflect on that as we continue. Let's go ahead and read the passage here. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. That's our text for today, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. So first of all, which we've talked a little bit about, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, he, he gives four different terms there for what's to be done, and then he indicates that these are for all people and particularly for kings and all who are in high positions. Well, one of the things that comes out of this very clearly is that Christians are to pray for the government, and this is a matter of pretty big importance for Paul. Right, right. And and um, I think we can approach this on on sort of two levels. Just, um, you know, the out-and-out, out, you know, good of our neighbors. Um, you know, when we pray for daily bread, uh, I think this is one of the brilliance or part of the brilliance of Luther's explanation, where he, I believe he explicitly lists that good government, I think, right, with good weather that we're actually right. praying for, where we pray for daily bread. And uh, I think that fits perfectly in in here, that it seems perfectly sensible. Now, it's obviously not that we're praying for, you know, certain, uh, you know, a particular certain political party, although, I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole of, you know, certain political parties may or may be more, more aligned with, uh, you know, Christian uh, ethos more than others, but, you know, he's not saying, he's not making this like an overt political action, you know, where, uh, well, pray for the people who who you're supportive and ask that God would crush all of your enemies. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says all of the people, all the people, and for kings and all who are in high positions. And I mean, it doesn't matter what their sort of political persuasion is. I mean, in you know, you sort of wonder, um, you know, when you've got people like Nero coming up here in uh, in a few short years, uh, you know, 
wouldn't Paul be exhorting them to still even pray for those who are opposed to the church? Uh, so that that uh, that uh, all people may be uh, benefited, not just the church. Well, and even I mean, depending on when you date First Timothy, and I, I know I know we didn't talk about this. But I, at least the Lutheran Study Bible suggests AD sixty-five, which, if I'm not mistaken, Nero would have been in power by that time already. So there's a possibility that that he's writing this even with Nero in the highest position, if not. It's not like the Roman emperors at this point were completely friendly to Christianity anyways, <laughs> right, right. which I think is, is worth pointing out. that. And again, what, and this goes back to the word, first of all, you know, what, what do you do first of all when it comes to kings in high positions? Well, you, you pray for them. You, you don't, you're not campaigning against them, although there may be a time and place for that. You're not speaking against them. You're not trying to get your guy in power. The first thing you're doing is praying for them. And I, I really appreciate how you said that. That's not a political action. In fact, it's actually a Christian action that we would pray for our leaders. Right, right. Yeah, and I hadn't, going back to your comment about Nero, I, you know, it had kind of slipped my mind. I do keep forgetting this is a little bit layer of dating. It's entirely possible that he could be praying. I mean, think about how much more impactful that is for him to say yeah. if, if Nero's the guy on the throne at this time. Um, it's a tremendous witness to us that even when there's people that we don't like in office, that we still continue to pray for them nonetheless. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it really, it really teaches us. Um, well, I mean, in a way, that how much different is this uh, uh, than than Jesus really on the cross? This is sort of, you know, the finest example of, or the finest example of this. You know, praying for your enemies, even, uh, you know, is Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, here he is on the cross praying for the very people who are crucifying him. And I feel like this is all part of the same cloth that we would be exhorted to uh, to pray for people who may not now always, uh, you know, be in line with us or sometimes could even be antagonistic for uh, within Christianity. I think we all need to remember that, um, you know, both in America and in nations throughout the world. Well, and even in that list that he gives in verse 1, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. You've got four different things that he's urging. All I mean, we kind of summarize them in prayer. And certainly supplications, prayers, intercessions, they all deal with that matter of asking or, or interceding, as we'll see. But there, that last one really stands out as a, a bit different when it comes to the matter of prayer, that there's a thanksgiving for all people, including kings in all her high positions. And that, think about the environment in which we find ourselves right now, or the environment mm -hmm. in, that Paul had. You're telling me I want to give thanks for, for Nero? I should give thanks for this this ruler that has it out for Christians? How how does that play into it, Pastor Johnson? Right. No, that's a, another really excellent observation, which admittedly I didn't make the first time, but to uh, to say thanksgivings is to acknowledge the fact that, uh, you know, that the Lord would still work some good even through the most evil of instruments. Uh, that there is, that doesn't mean, you know, we do want to be clear that thanksgiving does not mean you know, that we are giving consent to absolutely everything that, that people are doing. But to be able to say thanksgiving is to say, well, yes, I acknowledge that the Lord has still brought me some good, even through this utterly fallen person who may even be doing evil things. Um, I think it's really a testimony to, to the Lord's power um, through instruments to still bring good to his people. Um, 
And so in that case, I mean, we always have, always have some reason to be thankful for, no matter who is in office, because we acknowledge that this is what the Lord is actually giving to us, uh, even if it's not exactly what we would have voted for. Right. And I mean, think of, there was in the Old Testament reading in the three-year lectionary not that long ago from Isaiah 45, where the Lord names Cyrus ahead of time, right. and, and how the Lord worked through even you know the pagan emperor Cyrus to set his people free from exile. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, would they—, and, and they it, But well, he go calls ahead. it his salvation, though, right. too. He calls it his. And so I think that's really uh, really noteworthy that, yeah, even Cyrus, this, this pagan— uh, you know, the Lord can use for his own ends. Right, and, and in that sense, then, that brings it back to the daily bread that you were talking about earlier, how the matter of good government, even, even and again, that, I, I like how you said it, it's not that we're giving consent to everything, and we're saying that, yes, this is a good and godly thing that's being done, but we recognize the Lord's work even through the evil things that may be happening, and that he is still accomplishing his purposes through these kings and all are in high positions. And that's probably a good way to to continue then into how Paul goes. He gives a purpose for this. He says the right. reason that we that he's urging these prayers for kings and those who are in high positions is so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What is this saying about the purpose of government, first and foremost? Right. So I do want to give my qualifier right here, though, that you know, I think sometimes this is this is a classic verse. It's been used to give a definition for the purpose of government, um, at least in kind of an ultimate way. And I don't think I think we would be, I think we'd be um, getting a little over our skis if we did that, um, because it you know there's a lot of things it doesn't actually specify. It doesn't specify exactly how. You know, um, you know, whether you need, uh, you know, a democracy or, you know, or some kind of monarchy or anything like that. But it does tell us, though, that one of the divinely. One of the divinely given purposes of um, of government is so that we would have a quiet, peaceful uh, life wherein we can actually, uh, you know, walk according to the uh, to the Lord's way. And so, you know, so maybe a, a, a question to ask then is. Um, does our government give us the opportunity uh, that we might live our lives in godly devotion? It doesn't mean whether or not like they're enforcing godliness or even that, you know, that, uh, that they're, you know, having everybody pray in schools or even that, um, you know, or that we're giving some kind of special privileges Christians, but it almost kind of puts the, the bar a bit lower than that. Are we simply being afforded the opportunity? To exercise of faith. What's the what's the problem? Do you think if we reduce the purposes of government to just this one thing? You mentioned that, that it's not just this, but this is a part of it. What would be the problem if we just reduce it to this? That the government's just to stay out of the way and and let me have that opportunity. Right. Well, I think from a practical perspective, there's a lot of other things the Lord has actually instituted. We can look at. For example, uh, you know Romans 13, which is a lot more exhaustive of a passage about the uh, you know the role and purposes of government. St. Paul talks about you know the the government having the right of the sword, and in there, and we actually find that one of the government's roles is to uh, uh, to actually punish the evildoer. Uh, you know, to actually to establish, uh, you know, some kind of civic and and uh, justice, in, you know, in a society, so that we can, you know, that we don't have to live in total chaos. 
And so in all of that um, may enable us to uh, to live godly lives. But it's really also for the just the peace and well-being of our neighbor. In other words, there's an awful lot of things that the government does that are simply for the peace and well-being of our neighbors around us and don't necessarily have any kind of well, I shouldn't say any theological import, but not an explicitly theological purpose. So, right. So, if if the government simply takes a, a completely sort of hands-off approach, if we were to try to read that, that the government's job here is to just stay out of our way so that we can go about our own business, there's a temptation to forsake the godly positive actions that are given to civil authority elsewhere, for example, in Romans 13, that, mm-hmm. that it is the work of the government and is a good work of civil authority to actually punish bad conduct and to reward good conduct. To There's there's the spot for, I mean, think of the, the gospel reading that was paired with Isaiah 45 was Jesus talking about rendering to Caesar, the idea of right. paying taxes, which comes up in Romans 13 too. So we can't we can't take this passage from First Timothy two as an exhaustive uh, list of what Precisely. God gives to the government, lest we fall into those kinds of errors. Right, right, yeah. Because I mean, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that even though the Bible talks, uh, you know, a bit about secular government or um, you know, worldly government, we might even call it, um, it's not like it's a handbook, um, and we and we shouldn't treat it as such. Uh, we need to be able to take the statements that uh, that the scriptures do say about it, um, and our own personal, you know, our own as Christians, our own political philosophy. Sh- Philosophy should never contradict those things, but they're not circumscribed by it. In other words, we're not limited by, um, you know, Romans 13 and, you know, in First Timothy uh, chapter 2, or even, you know, or like like you were quoting from Matthew chapter 22, with, you know, render unto Caesar. I mean, those things are always going to be operative, but they're not exhaustive. So let's, I mean, we are right before an election, Pastor Johnson, and, and without getting into too much nitty-gritty— it's probably worth at least a moment of reflection as to how these things, well, how does a Christian take a passage like First Timothy 2 and some of the others that we've been talking about and make use of them as they prepare to cast not just a ballot, but, you know, several several offices will be voted on. Not There's not just one that's being voted on, on November 3rd. Right. How do, how do Christians hold all these things together, and perhaps with a, a bit more focus on First Timothy 2, since that's where we are today? Right. Yeah, that can be potentially such a big question. So I'll limit it. To, I'll limit myself to what I think is probably also the easier dimension of this, but also the one that's more specific to Second Timothy or First Timothy two here, is that we should not act as if this is the end of the world. If the guy, uh, you know, or the woman that you know who is running for office that we like doesn't get elected. Um, there, I think it's very, very dangerous, and it's, it does often happen in the church. We paint these kind of doomsday scenarios that if so and so doesn't get elected, you know, the whole world's gonna, you know, basically fall apart. And I mean, in many ways, that doesn't um, that doesn't abide by our uh, our trust that the Lord is indeed, uh, you know, not only our our King, but the one who, you know, uh, rules both heaven and earth. Um, but more specifically, I think the thing positively this does is it encourages us to pray before an election, pray during an election, and pray after an election. I mean, not to sound not to sound uh, trite about it, 
but we really should be encouraged to to continue to pray for everyone who is running, for the people who are working the polls, the people who are voting, that they would make well-informed decisions, and that that whoever would get elected um, would actually uh, conduct themselves in a God-pleasing way that allows precisely this, that we would lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Mm. Um, and and after they're elected, we should continue to pray for them as well. And uh, and so I guess the, <laughs> the what the dictum "pray without ceasing" I think probably fits in very beautifully here. So certainly, certainly, and this I mean again. First of all, Paul starts this chapter. First of all, this is a this is a matter of importance that that we would be busy praying for those in high positions. Now, what what's interesting, I think, is that how Paul continues. He says, "This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior." Now, again, having just reflected upon some of these readings, Matthew twenty-two, Isaiah forty-five, in preparation for a, a Sunday morning sermon. One of the reflections was, okay, when I think about who my earthly ruler is, who has civil authority over me, I always recognize that God is the ultimate ruler, the one who reigns as king overall. I think you mentioned that just a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Paul, But Paul here says it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He emphasizes the, the aspect of God as our Savior, which I think is, well, I don't know if it's interesting or telling, but it seems important that that's where he's going to put the ground is this, we're going to ground all this in the fact that God is my Savior, and he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the ground for ultimately the the matter of praying, is because God is Savior and he wants to save. Right. I mean, it does seem, at least, it struck me as being kind of an odd pivot at first, Um, you know, but I think you're highlighting this well, that... um, that it really focuses our eyes on what truly is important, that in as much as it is important for us to be praying for, you know, for our government officials and all of our authorities, that, that that's not the end-all, be-all. Um, in fact, I think even the prayer, the, the, the intended purpose of the prayer that we would be, be able to lead a peaceful life, we should not confuse that with somehow with the attainment of our salvation. I mean, we, you know, we have plenty of examples where, you know, the gospel flourishes and many people are saved even, in it, you know, even during, uh, you know, periods of intense persecution. I mean, you know, Paul's a perfect example of this himself um, because on the one hand, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities that were afforded him as a, um, uh, as a Roman citizen, you know, to travel about freely and to, uh, you know, and to be able to use that to get himself out of some tight spaces too. Um, and so they were for the benefit of the church and its growth. But, uh, but of course, um, you know, throughout like one of, we know that one of the most intense periods of persecution, at least in the early church was the third century with both the, the Adesian and the Diocletian persecution. Um, but there's there's plenty of issues uh, today too, where we know that the uh, the church is being persecuted in uh, in the Middle East and in China and other uh, in other countries, um, and so I think in the end the Lord wants us to pray for our government so that the church may experience peace and her work may flourish. But we also know that somehow it's not contingent upon that. In other words, it's not as if the Lord's salvation is somehow going to be thwarted. Um, you know, if there's some kind of dictatorial regime that, that stops Christian, you know, tries to stop Christians from worshiping and, and persecuting them, you know, in the end, I think we are, we're reminded that, 
Um, it's the Lord who's our Savior, and he will not be undone by any worldly government. Right. Well, and that, those two things then go together, that God is Savior and God is ruler, both mean that he's not going to be undone by any earthly government. And like you said, you know, can can the church and has the church flourished during times where the quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, was not possible? Of course it has, and, and we shouldn't deny the Lord's power in that. But generally speaking, is it more likely that the word of God will sound forth and people will hear it when there's not that threat of persecution? I mean, this is this is something that we should pray for. And again, not to say that God can't do it the other way, but he calls us right. to pray for it. And so we do, and we recognize the goodness that is there. And, and that's something I, I think that we can certainly give thanks for right now is that generally speaking in our country, despite the difficulties that are there and without giving consent to everything that's happening, generally speaking, I mean, I, I think I'm able, I mean, I'm sitting here in Smithfield, Texas in my office and no one's bothering me for talking on the radio with you, Pastor Johnson, about God's word. I, I've got this and that's something that we ought to praise God for. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Yes, it's. It, we don't want to diminish the uh, some of the difficulties that uh, that Christians have indeed faced in our own country, but I think we also need to be realistic about the fact that the vast majority of the time we are, you know, fairly unhindered in our worship, and uh, you know, that may not always be the case, but right now it is. And uh, thanks be to God. Yeah, this this text is. I mean, it's it's one that's familiar because it shows up on on Thanksgiving. It's one of the appointed epistles for Thanksgiving. I don't know if you if you've used it in the past. It's always it's always striking for me when when it does show up on a Thanksgiving, particularly during an election year, like it will this year. It it's just a a moment to reflect on certainly the good things that we've experienced in this country and ultimately the the ultimate goodness that we have not because of regardless of government but because we've got God as our savior who desires all people to be saved and he's actually delivering it to us right now in the means of grace it does make for a fantastic text for thanksgiving we got about a minute here to wrap this conversation up on this side of the break no it doesn't i think you uh you just may have tipped me off to my thanksgiving sermon for this year so <laughs> <laughs> well you're you're welcome you're welcome thanks be yeah, to no, god no, no problem that's right 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 I'll, I'll i'll send you i'll send you a copy when i'm all finished with it so um, <laughs> that's wonderful thank thanks be to god you're listening to sharper iron here on kfyo we're going to take a short break we'll be right back please stick around Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 26th. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We've got Pastor Jeremiah Johnson with us. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 3 and 4, 
this prayer that God gives us for the government. This is good. It is pleasing in his sight because he desires the salvation of all people. He desires that all come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul continues, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is a lot packed into just those two verses. So let's let's start with the first thing that Paul says. There is one God. There's one mediator. This, this image of one keeps coming up. Right. I'd actually like to go back even just a step further, believe it or not, to the very first word, for. Hmm. Um, I think it it's easy to escape our notice that what Paul is doing logically here is he's already established, you know, God is our savior. He wants to save everybody. Um, uh, but now he gives us the ground of that statement. You know, in other words, you know, how, how does this happen? How is this possible for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so, so yeah, there's some really big theological ideas here, especially mediator and ransom. Um, and uh, and even giving himself, and so there's, uh, so we do well to kind of be real careful with this because it's not these aren't going to be new ideas to us, but we want to be kind of it's it's almost like these are very delicate specimens, and we want to maintain the nuance of of what a mediator is and what a ransom is, and so he starts off well. First of all, there's there's one God, and so you know. <laughs> So uh, he, he he knocks out Trinitarian theology, or uh, well, he, he knocks out um, you know the idea of uh, of polytheism right off the bat. Um, but then there's one mediator between God and man, and so you know this this term mediator um, is at least in broad sense uh, someone who is a go between. Now. Sometimes it can be used even more specifically, you know, uh, somebody who is a go-between in order to either settle a dispute. Um, but uh, but when Christ is is described as a mediator, you know, it's here are the two parties. It's between humanity and it's God. And somebody needs to sort of stand, uh, stand in the place. And um, at least I noticed right away, I thought, well, in what way is he a mediator? It seems kind of natural because Paul's just exhorted us here to pray, right? And and we talk about mediatorial prayer. Um, is this is this really where he's he's talking about it because he's talking about prayer, or does he have something a little bit more in mind? In other words, is it associated just with the prayer, or is this more associated with um, kind of a broader sense of salvation? And if we the other big place where mediator keeps on showing up over and over again is Hebrews. So uh, Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 12 all kind of talk about this. And uh, and the writer of Hebrews is pretty consistent in talking and connecting this idea of a mediator between not necessarily someone who prays, although it's, it doesn't exclude that, but really more strongly connects it. Uh, to the idea of a covenant. In other words, he's the person who mediates a covenant. You know, so between between God and man, there's somebody who's going to broker the promise between the two of them, and that's going to be Jesus Christ. Um, I think the most helpful passage that really speaks directly to this is uh, is Hebrews 9. And uh, if you don't mind, I want to read it in, in at least a few verses from it. Um, so okay. starting with, uh, yeah, so starting with, 
with chapter um, 9, verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, so the picture here that, that the writer of Hebrews is, is painting, he's saying, like, listen, you guys all know the, you know the temple, you know, in Jerusalem, right? Well, that's actually just a copy of the heavenly reality, that there's a heavenly temple. And the thing is, the, uh, the high priest who would go into the holy place and make these offerings on behalf of the people, essentially as a mediator, um, all of that is just really imitating what's already happening in heaven with Christ himself. Christ is the true uh, the true high priest who goes in and offers the sacrifices to bring the people back to God. If, if you don't mind me, I'm going to go on a, a real quick side tangent, but it's all related here. Um, one of the ways that we can conceive the ultimate sort of problem of humanity that the Bible sketches out for us is that we've been separated from God. We need to be brought back together with him. Um, but of course, the problem is the thing that's in between us is, you know, is our depravity. It's our sin. And so somebody needs to bring the two of us back together. And of course, um, in the grand scheme of things, we, you know, the Old Testament reads like um, almost like preparatory work in this way, you know, like all these little versions of God and man being brought back together, like for instance on Mount Sinai, or through the uh, the instrumentality of the tabernacle or the temple. But finally, all this is just pointing to Christ, who's the who is the great one, who's the great instrument that that mediating person who brings us back together with God, so that we can actually be in His presence again. And in the sacrificial system, the way that happens is through the blood of sacrificial animals. But of course, all that is pointing ahead to Christ himself, who's going to offer, as the writer of Hebrews says, by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, implying that all this other redemptive stuff uh, that they did in the Old Testament was fine and well and good. It was prescribed by God, but it was all tempor or temporary. The only real um, the only real restoration, redemption that could actually take place is by the high priest who also becomes the sacrifice um, and, and secures eternal redemption and, and brings us back together with God again. Um, so verse 13, it continues. So this is still back to Hebrews 9, 13. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifer sanctifies for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without any blemish to God, um, note, by the way, so it's the blood of Christ, and it says that he offered himself, that sacrificial talk. Um, you know, you offer a sacrifice. Um, you know, this isn't just offering somebody like a, a beverage. Uh, this is this is sacrificial atonement kind of talk. Then he goes on and says um, that it would purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And here's the third final point. Therefore, Okay, so he's kind of wrapping it all up, and it sounds remarkably like um, a, a commentary almost on this passage from Second or First uh, Timothy chapter two. 
He is therefore the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, salvation, if we could say, uh, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So now finally we have we have Christ as uh, we have Christ as a mediator, the one mediator between God and man. But here it's associated with this new covenant, which of course establishes this new relationship between God and man. And so you can see, you know, the writer of Hebrews is just really is operating with exactly the same theology that St. Paul is. It's just a lot more fleshed out. Um, and so it's this new covenant, it's this new relationship, uh, so that uh, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. In other words, the salvation that St. Paul is. Uh, is already talking about here in verses three and four, back in First Timothy chapter two. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> that, that was a lot, wasn't it? <laughs> no, but that, that was excellent, taking us there to Hebrews chapter nine. So, and, and to, and I think you're right to bring that understanding of mediator into this passage. And and again, certainly prayer fits into that, but it's a larger thing, and there's a, a bigger right. thing going on here with Jesus being the mediator here between God and men. And, and here, the way Paul puts it is that he gave himself, which maybe not as specifically sacrificial as we heard there in Hebrews 9, but it's certainly connected to that. And the way that, that Paul says he gave himself as a ransom for all, that's another key term that we should consider when it comes to, I mean, we've got mediator and we've got giving himself and we've got ransom. They're all connected, but they have nuances that each one we need to, to pick up. So we've looked at at mediator, let's consider gave himself and ransom. Right. Yeah. So mediator, you know, somebody, for somebody to be a mediator, it doesn't require you to die. Um, you know, there's, there's, in fact, I would say that's kind of the exception and not the rule. Most of the time, mediators don't act as mediators. They don't act as go-betweens um, by giving up their own life. Um, but, but this is the, the specific kind of content that Jesus is filling this with. Um, you, you pointed out that gave himself. Um, I think that's a passage we could easily skip over, but it's it's one that gets repeated just a couple of times in the New Testament. Um, and give gave himself is in reference to Jesus's own, uh, you know, substitutionary sacrifice. And so we, we find it two other places in Paul. We find it in Galatians 1 and Titus 2. Um, so in Galatians 1, it says, He who gave himself, talking about Jesus, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And then in Titus chapter 2, it's just a little bit different nuance, but it's a very similar concept. It says, who gave himself uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, um, you know, if we're talking kind of in Lutheran shorthand or even just theological shorthand, I think the Galatians passage talks more, a little bit more about, leans a little bit more on justification. And uh, I think Titus kind of incorporates some of uh, the sanctifying terminology for this because in Galatians it says, he gave himself, it indicates a, a substitutionary sacrifice. Interestingly, the wording there is almost the same, is uh, is the same as in the words of institution, you know, given and shed for you, it's the same preposition being used here, um, you know, for, uh, for our sins. So it's, it's, the idea is substitute and it's that, the idea of sacrifice to deliver us, to, and to deliver and to save our, our, our really close synonyms. But then in Titus, 
um, you don't have quite the same sacrificial language, but instead he says for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And so now it's not so much for our sins, but it's for us, but it's that same kind of substitutionary talk. And so I know we're kind of getting into the details, but let me kind of draw this all together with a big picture. My point is, is that what Hebrews introduced for us really is um, the idea of Christ as this mediator, this go-between between us and God. But uniquely what he does is not just as any old mediator, but he's a mediator by his own sacrifice of himself. That's actually, in other words, the cross is his mediatorial work. Now, it's not, I, I, I don't want to say it's limited to that, but it's central though, which if you think about it, it's really kind of an odd thing. Um, you know, most go-betweens, you know, like lawyers who are mediators between two, you know, two different parties, they don't die for the parties, right? right. I mean, uh, it's kind of a crazy thought, but that's what's you. That's the unique content that, that Jesus is filling with this. Um, he's the he's the the go-between, but he builds this bridge between us and the Father, really by his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. He dies in our place so that he might bring the two of us back together. Mm, okay. And and hopefully that none of that sounds really remarkable or new, but hopefully you can see how this these texts all work together to kind of shape that whole doctrine that I think we all learned, at least in confirmation class, in super shorthand, at least I did, between like, I don't know if you had this one, but I remember my confirmation teacher drew a cliff, uh, you know, like uh, two cliffs with like this big chasm in between, mm -hmm. you know, God was on one side, you know, you're on the other. And then there's a, uh, there's a cross shaped bridge in between them. That's basically what all of this is, is kind of articulating. Right. I've had that, I've had that image in my mind as you were talking as well. And, and I think that, you know, you brought up the, the lawyer and the way typically a mediator doesn't pay the price himself. I mean, generally you pay the mediator to mediate <laughs> right. the conflict. That's what happens with, with lawyers and, and God bless lawyers. I don't mean that. And I'm not speaking negatively of them, but you pay the right, mediator. Right. They got to they feed their family too, right? That's right. That's right. So you pay the mediator to mediate the conflict for you. Here we've got a mediator who pays the price himself to bring the parties together. And maybe that that's a way to, to bridge toward this term ransom as well, because there, there are some payment connotations in that term, I think. Right. I think I already started kind of broaching in on that without even using the term ransom, because a ransom, of course, is um, what you pay for someone's release. And uh, and so usually that's, you know, some kind of, you know, monetary amount of ransom can be you can either imagine like, uh, you know, a hostage situation where they demand like ten million dollars for the release to these hostages. Or you can even think of, uh, you know, historically in terms of uh, in terms of slavery, there was usually some kind of uh, price to pay for your own freedom. Uh, but but once again, we see the uniqueness here where he it's not even just that Jesus pays the ransom. He becomes the ransom. You know, so he doesn't just shell out 10 million bucks, <laughs> you know, he pours out his blood. And uh, in, in that way, um, f sort of full circle, you can see that um, we noted that in the words of institution, we have this substitutionary sacrificial talk when we, when we hear for you, in other words, in your place. Um, but we also have this, um, this implicit concept of ransom as well, uh, that Jesus is pouring out the very payment for our own sins, but then he's giving it to us. 
Right. It's. I mean, it's a. It's a. Fan, when you start to draw some of these images together, it really is a fantastic image. As one one thing that we did skip over, Pastor Johnson, is that as as Paul is putting this together in verse five, he says, "There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men," and then he says specifically, "the man Christ Jesus." Now, I mean, this is you talk about confirmation classes. In fact, I'm getting ready to teach this in, in just a short time the two natures in Christ, that Christ is both God and man at the same time. Why here do you think, does Paul emphasize that he is the man, Christ Jesus? Yeah, this is this is a question I had too, and uh, full disclosure, I didn't get a chance to, to research it quite as much, so you're getting a little bit of shooting from the hip here. But, um, you know, the one thing we should not conclude is that somehow Paul is downgrading, uh, you know, the divinity of Christ. But um, there was a, an early church, um, or was it was it Anselm who said uh, Christ he could not uh, he could not redeem what he did not become. Was that him? Am I remembering that right? Oh, you, you've you've got me there. Oh, oh, did Johnson. I get you? Okay. Yeah. Well, well, anyway, I mean, doesn't but does there, the right to the fam- Hebrews? Some famous old guy. <laughs> Well, doesn't the writer of the Hebrews talk about that he became like us in every way except without sin? Right. Or, right. or you know, uh, Hebrews 2.14, since therefore mm-hmm. the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same right. things. Right. So, I mean, know, because whether or not it's Anselm, he, he's picking up on a biblical idea, and that is simply that Jesus becomes what he comes to save. Mm-hmm. And that— um, you know, and Jesus' sacrifice um, calls for him to die. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and one of the classic, you know, conundrums that, that we all, that we might have gotten in confirmation class or maybe we've, we heard elsewhere is, you know, can God possibly die? No, but Jesus can. And, and yes, the answer is, yes, God can die, but in Jesus, he can. Because I, how could, how can you know, God who's, who's omnipotent and eternal, how could he possibly suffer death? Well, he suffers death according to his human nature, um, not according to his divine nature. And I think that's probably the simplest and maybe just the best explanation here, because if Paul is emphasizing Christ, um, Christ's ransom price as his own, you know, as his own blood, as his own death, um, then, then it's important to emphasize his humanity here because um, if, you know, uh, he dies, Jesus dies according to his humanity, uh, not according to, you know, um, you know, not according to his divinity, but of course he is still, of course, God and man. Hopefully I didn't make any mistakes there. I always, I always get nervous when I start talking about the two natures because like you get the wrong preposition and all of a sudden you're a heretic. So (laughs) it certainly requires great care. And I I think, I think as, as you, as you were talking about the terms mediator and ransom and Christ giving himself, I, my mind was going the same direction as yours, that Paul emphasizing that Christ Jesus is a man here fits in very nicely with that, because the fact that he is a man means that he can and does die for for men, for those whom he came to save, for those whom he is. I mean, he is our brother without sin. He is like right. us in every way. And, and just to, I mean, so that we don't, Confu- and, and I followed with you, but so that we don't, the fact that the man Christ Jesus died does mean that God died for you. Right. Because yeah. the man Christ Jesus is also God at the same time. A- right. And so because he died, that does mean that God died. That And, and that means that the ransom that is given, it it's sufficient because he is 
because he is both God and man at the same time. It is a sufficient ransom, and it is a ransom for you, because your brother is the one who paid it. He paid this ransom himself as God and man for you. And, and hopefully right. hopefully I used the right prepositions, too. <laughs> yeah, it, it always gets tricky, so hopefully everybody will simply be, uh, will be generous, because there's probably a lot of footnotes we could have put on that conversation. <laughs> but... But in the end, no, you're you're exactly right that it is, um, you know, uh, Christ dies, um, you know, a Christ, uh, a human being dies for human beings. Now, of course, he's not only a human being, but right, right, and that's I mean, of course, that is the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the two natures in Christ. That that because these two natures are united in the way that they are. When the man Christ Jesus dies, that means that God dies for you, and and right. that means that means that you are saved. That that and that's I mean I think that really fits together with what Paul is doing here, and and so you know for him to say the man Christ Jesus certainly fits in very nicely with the idea of ransom and mediator and and his death for sinners. But it goes hand in hand with the fact that he is also God there on the cross dying for you, accomplishing precisely what God desires to happen, which is the salvation of all people, and received then according to faith. Uh, let's see, Pastor Johnson, we got about five and a half minutes here on the morning. Let's go ahead and, and make sure we we cover verse 7 of the text as well. And then maybe if we have any time, we'll, we'll come back and pick up a few other points. Paul finishes, for this... I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. How, how does this wrap up this section? Right. I think there's two things to uh, to pick up on. Let's pick up the second first. He's a teacher of the Gentiles. Why does he uh, Why does he pick out the Gentiles? Well, I think that um, harkens back to uh, to verse uh where he says he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, of course, he's he's also you know speaking to, uh, to Timothy and with respect to the uh, the church in Ephesus, and so which um, you know um, is not a Jewish only uh, congregation here. So, so I think that makes that makes perfect sense. But what I think is probably the more profound comment is this: for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Um, you know, Paul, of course, is, you know, often, you know, defends his apostleship, especially those who would be detractors. But I mean, this is a really salutary reminder to both pastors and lay people alike that um, of what exactly what's your pastor there to do? You know, Paul says it's for this. I mean, this is the whole this is the whole kit and caboodle is to, uh, you know, is to proclaim the God who saves uh, through the inc- uh, incarnate Son of God, Christ Jesus, who comes as uh, both uh, mediator and ransom um, in a new in a new covenant. And in other words, uh, that's the whole deal. I mean, so in a I think in a context, and maybe this is just me reading too much, uh, you know, reading it with too much sensitivity as a pastor. There's so much confusion, I think, nowadays about what a pastor is really supposed to do. You know, he's supposed to be, you know, some kind of a life coach and best friend for everybody, and he's supposed to host parties, or, you know, he's supposed to be inspirational and all these other things. And and not to say that those are inherently bad, um, you know, or that there can't be a lot of hats that a pastor wears. But when push comes to shove, the, uh, you know, the pastor is there very simply to, to proclaim Jesus to you. 
I mean, that's, I, I had a conversation with, with one of my members and I will leave out almost all the details, but I did eventually just say this. I'm like, this is my job to remind you of what Jesus means for you. That's my job. Um, and I'm, it's, it's a glorious one. I would never trade it for anything in the world. Uh, but, but I think it is really helpful to be regrounded in that all the time. God wanted to, to declare to you, uh, you know, this, you know, beautiful mystery of his son being the mediator of a new covenant. And, um, and he's put a pastor there to be his mouthpiece, to keep on telling you that over and over and over again. Um, and of course, along with it, you know, exhortations and other things like that too, but this is the crux of the matter for this reason. And, um, it, it just, it strikes me as being intimately personal as well. Well, and I think it, that really, that way of wrapping it up ties it back together what we were saying at the beginning. We started this conversation talking about government and praying for government and how easily it is that thinking about those things would consume our lives, even as Christians. And yet, right. you know, what has God put your pastor here to do? To preach Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the one who has given himself as the ransom. And, and what is it that God wants you to have? He wants you to have that. Trust in that truth that is for you, for your salvation. And, and with all these other things that might consume our lives otherwise, Paul here and, and the Lord through Paul's words puts our attention back on the central matter, which is Christ crucified and risen for you. Right. I think I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. This, this is the Bible. This is what the Bible is all about. And that's what, again, Paul comes back to here in First Timothy chapter 2. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us this morning with First Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.